I appreciate my wife so much that I'll use her as an illustration this morning, I'm sure. She loves it when I do that. John chapter 16 this morning. And we want to talk about sorrow into joy. And we're going to dismiss our young people this morning. Uh, uh, Children's Church is going to be the first Sunday this month. We've gone so many months without it. But we have children who are between age three and up. Second, third grade. Want to send them? Third grade. You want to go? Miss Yvonne's waiting for you. I'm sure she's got something special just for you. All right. All right, John chapter 16. Sorrow into joy, I want to look at this morning. The question I want to ask this morning, first of all, is are you a joyful person? Are you known for being a joyful person? When other people are around you, do they sense an attitude of joy? Or are you an old grouch? Or a young grouch? I've known people, perhaps you have too, that just seem to have an air of joy about them. You just can't help but... You know, smile when you they because they, they're always smiling. They're always joyful about things, and they can be a real blessing. They can be a real encouragement to people. But joy is a word that is not easily defined. Webster's unabridged dictionary defines it as a very glad feeling, happiness, great pleasure, delight. And these terms are certainly terms that would describe joy. But the Christian explanation has a much deeper dimension to it. We would put it like this. Joy is the disposition of the heart and the mind of the one who delights singularly in the Lord. Joy is the disposition of the heart and the mind of the one who delights singularly in the Lord. Now, it's a disposition. That's my word for the week, okay? Disposition. My wife's word of the week was cute. Everything seemed to be cute this week. Our grandchildren, pictures of them, oh, that's cute, you know. They're always cute. Uh, The Hull's chickens are cute. And then there's the Facebook post of a rooster caring for motherless baby chicks. And we could go on and on and on. Isn't that cute? But my word is disposition, okay? Her word is cute. And, but you'll never find her saying that about me. Anyway, disposition. Disposition is a frame of mind or the nature or the display of character in a person. It's a disposition that affects the whole person, both visible and invisible. Joy begins within and permeates the whole of one's life. And such a disposition of joy in the Christian sense goes beyond the natural inclination of one's personality. You know, you can't just say, well, that's the way that person is. They're just joyful. Well, they might be happy a lot of times, but are they really joyful in the Christian perspective? 
It's joy that flows directly from a singular delight in the Lord. Now, we're reminded of this joy in many places in the Scripture. The psalmist tells us, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. And such an exhortation pictures the believer finding his greatest treasure in the Lord. What is the thing that you treasure the most in life? In Psalms, it also says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And that's the kind of thing that we'll see here in our text this morning. But uh, another uh, passage would be Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who gives us an excellent exhortation concerning revival and a renewed relationship to the Lord. And he expresses it the true sense of Christian joy in a familiar passage in Habakkuk 3, uh, verses 17 through 19. It says this, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olives shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. That's a pretty dismal picture so far, right? But he goes on to say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet and he will make me to walk upon my high places and to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Even though everything's dismal around us and everything seems to be failing, we need to be like Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The prophet understood the supremacy of being in a relationship with the living God. And though every circumstance was against him, if the Lord is his Lord, he will yet rejoice in divine joy. I think of the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is the epistle of joy. I love the book of Philippians. There are numerous instances throughout this letter that resound with the joy of the Lord. Paul continues to exhort the Philippian believers who were living under oppression and poverty and difficulty to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy in spite of circumstances, joy in spite of people, joy in spite of things, and joy that will defeat worry. There's your book of Philippians in a nutshell, okay? You said, I thought we were in John. We are. Okay, every circumstance becomes an opportunity to focus upon the goodness of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord and the reality of the Lord's sovereignty so that the believer can rejoice in the Lord. One old-time preacher struck this theme of joy in the Lord time and time again. Again, he made this statement in one of his messages. He said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. Now, the joy of the Lord that he speaks of and which the Bible speaks of cannot be manipulated by a preacher or produced by some type of psychological practice. Indeed, a false joy that depends upon circumstances and certain feelings can be worked up in any group. But true joy... The overflowing of the indwelling life of Christ, the radiance of the fruit of the Spirit, cannot be copied or cannot be stolen. Joy for the Christian is both a reality and a practice. 
Our joy in the Lord distinguishes us from the world. True joy cannot be stolen by tests or circumstances or by other people. And so we must ask, can we live in joy in the present world we live in? Is it possible, knowing all the horrible things that are going on in this world today, to live in pure, boundless joy? Well, I believe here John chapter 16 speaks clearly as to the reality, even the necessity of true Christianity. Two main thoughts here this morning. The first one is joy as the present disposition of believers. That's my favorite word again this week. Joy is the present disposition of believers. We must keep in mind that Jesus was preparing his disciples for life without his bodily presence. He was readying them for the work of the Holy Spirit among them. He had been elevating their minds and spirits to feast upon the truth of the Holy Spirit's coming, indwelling, and work in their lives. They did not understand everything at this point. And I think it's useful to add that though these disciples did not understand everything, he taught them nonetheless. He knew that the Spirit would bring to them the understanding just as he said that he would. And so often we can get upset if something is being taught that we don't understand. We may say, that's over my head. That's beyond my intelligence. That's too hard for me to understand. I believe we can learn a simple lesson here from the Lord's ministry. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. We need not fear teaching that is hard to grasp, for it is of the Lord. Then we will ultimately understand that we, as we persist in seeking, and the Holy Spirit will persist in guiding. We cannot separate this section from the previous detailed explanation of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at that uh, last week especially. We looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our morning uh, message, in our evening message. And it's the essence of continuation of the same vein of thought. Jesus is speaking here in, in almost veiled language. He says, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again in a little while and ye shall see me because I go to my Father. Well, that seemed to be a riddle. They couldn't understand. What does he mean by that? And they began to ask themselves what that meant. And I think part of the Lord's teaching methodology was to lay something out that that was hard to grasp so that the hearers would stop and think and begin to question, what does that mean? Part of the Lord's teaching was just done that way. It's only after their wrestling with his statements that Jesus begins to unfold the truth in more plain language. And it's this unfolding that we need to see. We must keep in mind the premise that joy in the Lord is the present disposition or the frame of mind or the distinguishing mark of believers. Jesus knew that much sorrow awaited the disciples in just a few hours' time. Yet he also knew that much greater joy awaited them as well. And so he points this out. First of all, he says, sorrow comes. Sorrow comes. And you know that too. Sorrow comes in our lives. Sorrow is a cruel reality of living in this world. Every person will at some time face sorrow to some degree or another. It may be sorrow brought on by one's personal health or our family circumstances or the situation uh, on the job. 
It may be sorrow that is brought on by world affairs. We listen to the news, we read the newspaper, we we check our internet uh, news sources, and we see what a mess this world is in, and it brings sorrow to our hearts. Sorrow is a part of life. I think that's why some of the old hymn writers called it uh, called this life a veil of tears. You'll find that in some of the old hymns. The root of the disciples' sorrow, though, was going to be the death of Christ. What we now understand as the root of our joy was to them a root of deep anguish. A little while, and yet, uh, excuse me, a little while, and ye shall not see me. Jesus tells them by this he refers to his impending death. His impending death, it was just hours away before he was going to die on the cross. And his disciples would be full of sorrow. The world that put Christ to death would rejoice. But they would be sad. They would be sorrowful. And there's another reminder of the attitude of the world to Jesus Christ. Even today, we cannot be duped into thinking that the world considers Christ wonderful. Some will acknowledge him. They'll even praise him for his humanitarian works. They say, well, he was a good teacher. He did many good things, but they don't think Christ is wonderful. And we begin to describe his death. And we may even go into great detail about his death. And you watch the world begin to squirm in discomfort and even ridicule such conversation. Why are you talking about uh, Christ dying on a cross and shedding his blood? Sometimes openly and other times secretly, the world rejoices in the death of Christ, but it's for the wrong reason. And so we must see that sorrow, whether it's due to the world's attitude toward Christ and Christianity, or due to some other circumstance, sorrow is real. Very, very real. Jesus reminds the disciples at the end of the chapter, In the world ye shall have tribulation, down in verse 33. Paul reminds Timothy, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul said of himself on several occasions that he suffered from both outward and inward circumstances. Peter speaks of uh, sharing the sufferings of Christ in 1 Peter 4.13. James refers to the suffering while under trials and temptations. And all this brings sorrow in various proportions. And so though sorrow is very real, our Lord promises that such sorrowing turns to joy. Sorrow turns to joy. Now, we stay here by our context, which is that the disciples would have sorrow at the death of Christ. But Christ says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. How does that happen? Two things. Two things would turn their sorrow into joy. The first one is the resurrection of Christ. First, the disciples had a great joy in the resurrection of Christ. You know, you read the gospel narratives of the disciples when they discovered that Christ had risen from the dead. Uh, It shows great joy as they began, uh, it begins to work into their lives. And they had known the joy in the presence of the Lord, but then they had known sorrow to an incredible measure when Christ, their hope died. 
And then the depth of sorrow faded as soon as they understood that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And I think we too have great joy because Jesus Christ is alive. That should bring great joy to our hearts. We don't serve a dead Lord. We sing, we serve a risen Savior. He lives, He lives. All right? The songs of the resurrection in our hymnals have that common ring of joy in their lyrics and their melodies, and rightly so, for knowing that Jesus Christ is alive, that He conquered death, sin, and Satan, that ought to cause great unbounded joy in our lives. If you're having trouble with this whole thing of joy, you need to go back and study the crucifixion and the resurrection passages of the Gospels. And you understand what our Lord was saying in verse 21 as he compares his death and his resurrection to the travail of birth and actual, uh, the actual birth of a child. And many of you uh, ladies know exactly what we're talking about there. The travail, the labor pains. Maybe some of you said, I'm never doing this again. And maybe some of you did, but others of you did it again and again and again and again. Oh, well, stop there. I just remember being in the birth, birthing room with my wife when she was giving birth. And I won't go into detail about the agony that she seemed to be in. But it's agony. It's travail. That's the word that's used here. But when it's over, the peace and the joy that comes seeing the little child in mother's arms, and the pain is over. Yet how many have forgotten those words once the joy of that newborn babe rests in their arms? The disciples forgot the sorrow of the crucifixion once they saw the resurrected Christ. The other aspect is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last week. And that's a second reality that brings joy. I, can, I think we can see this in the contrasting record of the disciples at the end of the, the Gospels, and then you go to the book of Acts. You find the disciples not quite knowing what to do after the resurrection. They were rejoicing, yes, but they just didn't know quite how to act. They actually seemed a bit discouraged because their time with Christ after the resurrection was going to be limited and their joy was not sustained or consistent. We find them retreating back to their fishing nets and quite possibly even being discouraged. But that's not the picture we find of the apostles in Acts. There's great joy in their lives and there's constant movement in obedience to Christ. What was the difference? It was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to give us joy. Paul identifies joy as one of the aspects of Spirit's fruit in our lives. It's a distinguishing mark of a true believer. The divine paraclete. Remember the word paraclete is the Greek word for comforter. One who comes alongside in the midst of our sorrows and breathes into us a sense of divine joy. He actually gives us the same joy that Christ himself has in just being who he is. After speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit last week, someone asked me a question. And someone else who heard the question said they were wondering the same thing. 
The question was, why did Jesus have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come? Couldn't he have come before Jesus left? That's a good question. Of course, my immediate answer was, because that's the way God planned it. (laughs) I was accused of copping out. But I want you to notice, even today, Jesus did not say the Holy Spirit could not come. That's in our memory verse for this last week. But that he will not come until Jesus went away. Look at back in verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, what's the next word? Will not come. It's not that he could not come. It's that he will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. It's not that he couldn't have come, but he would not come. Jesus is discussing with his disciples on the night that he was to be betrayed that shortly he would die and then be resurrected and return to heaven. And for the disciples, this would seem to be then the end of all their hope. But Jesus tells them it was advantageous for them that he leave. Now, here's the point in this, and that is that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each one has their role to fulfill salvation of mankind. Jesus had to complete his duties before the Spirit could begin his. The Spirit would be involved in the spreading of the gospel throughout the world. You look at verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you unto all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. It would be no good news. There would be no good news if uh, to, to spread to the world if Jesus had not died and been resurrected. There would have been no good news. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, lest ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel, right? there. And the fact that Jesus arose is the key cornerstone to the gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12 it says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of uh, among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith also vain? Yea, and ye are found false witnesses of God because ye have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Do you see how important the resurrection is? You see, Jesus was laying the foundation upon which many in this world would be saved. But without that foundation, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the good news of the gospel, without that foundation, the work of the Spirit was needed to accomplish. And that would have been useless had that foundation not been set. And that's why it was to the disciples and the mankind's advantage that Jesus complete his work, which meant leaving this world so that the Spirit would be able to come in and do his work. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an earnest of our inheritance under the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of His glory. Now, you go back to your... Uh, text here in our text in John 16 verse 12 I have yet many things to say unto you but you cannot bear them now Howbeit, when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into truth all truth he sh- shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak and he shall show you things to come he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you all things that the father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. And a little while, and ye shall not see me again. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. And notice that this passage, there are three distinct beings discussed. The Father who was given, had given Jesus all things to whom the Son would come, the Son who is going to the Father, who would give what the, His words to the Spirit to be declared. The Spirit will not speak of His own authority, thus neither the Father or the Son, but take the Son and glorify Him. He said in John 15 and verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy may be full. It's the joy of Christ with which the Spirit floods the believer. It's the joy in the midst of the trials. You got trials? It's the joy in the midst of adversities. Do you have adversity? It's the joy among suffering. You have sufferings? All of these sufferings may be present in our lives. But the joy is the disposition of our minds and our hearts. The reality for the child of God is that we can rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance and situation of life. I wonder, do we know the joy of the Lord this morning? While joy is a present reality for the believer's disposition, it is also something that we are to pursue and to cultivate. And that brings us to the rest of the text here, and that is that joy's essentials for the believer's disposition. And we need to understand those things that God has given us for maintaining our joy. Obviously, joy can be can diminish and perhaps even be lost for a period of time and even neglected. Now, I didn't say you'd lose your salvation, but the joy of your salvation can be lost. It happened to David, didn't it? David sinned. And then when he went to confess his sin, he told the Lord, he asked the Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. His own sin had robbed him of joy for a period. And that's what sin will do. It'll rob you and me of joy. The sin of selfishness and pride will rob us of the joy that we have in God. I believe our text here 
points to several essentials for maintaining our joy in an unbounded fashion. And I do think that this is a battle which we face. We need to realize that our joy is not just because of our circumstances. Our joy isn't because, you know, we got a good score playing a game. Our joy isn't just because we made something. Whether it be something in the home or something out uh, in workplace. We, we don't, our, our joy just doesn't come because of what we do. Indeed, we see Him, but we need to realize that there are essentials that we need to see and we need to put to practice. Number one is the relation of Christ to the believer. That's essential. In verse 22, I think the wording there is very important for us to see in verse 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Notice that the emphasis is not on the disciples seeing Jesus again. If that was the only way they're going to have joy, then they're going to be greatly hindered uh, by the ascension when, when Jesus would ascend back into heaven. Then their joy would be lost once again. It wasn't in seeing him, uh, but we see through the eyes of faith. And that's done by the re- revealing work of the Holy Spirit. Think about grace of God. And his saving work in your life. And how he blesses you. Think of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The truth assures us of the constancy of his divine attention to our lives. Christ sees us. He looks upon as beloved, the redeemed, when he purchased, which he purchased by his blood. And he sees us. He intercedes for us continually. Have you ever noticed how a child many times can be more relaxed in most any circumstance as long as he knows his parents are watching him? Now I know that sometimes children are afraid that their parents are watching them because they're doing something that's naughty, right? But usually when they... Do, are doing something. Maybe they're playing baseball or they're out playing, doing something. They say, Dad, Dad, watch me, watch me. And then they'll do something crazy, you know, like jump off of something that's too high for them to do. Like my son did, you know. And I say, you shouldn't do that. You're going to get hurt. He says, well, I haven't hurt, gotten hurt yet. You know. Uh, so, some of you know what I'm talking about. But most of the time, children want to be watched by their parents. We've probably heard it many, many times as parents, and yet there's great security in the mind of that child knowing that mom and dad have their eyes upon them. Can we learn a similar lesson? You know, we look at our sorrows and we think, well, oh, everything's lost. We look at our trials and we get depressed and we get sad and sorrowful. Yet our sights need to be elevated to the loving gaze of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's in continual operation of seeing us, watching us. 
What a joy it is to know that he who began a good work in us will continue it until the day that our final redemption is complete. What a joy there is in knowing that he has set his eye of redeeming love upon us so that even while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us ungodly though we were. What a joy there is in knowing that he has redeemed us from the hand of the enemy and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom. What a joy it is to know that though we are at enmity with God, that though his own grace, uh, through his own grace, has shown us abundantly in Christ by his own action on our behalf, so that we are called children of God. That's a joy that no one can take from us. There's a relation of Christ to the believer. And then secondly, there's the assurance of sufficiency of Christ. Go down to verse 23 and it says, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. That may seem like a strange statement, but consider what it means. The mention of in that day undoubtedly refers to the time after his resurrection, and they would no longer be able to ask him questions. The initial word translated acts, ask there, he shall ask me nothing. That's the first time it's used, the word ask, has a sense of a request in prayer. Excuse me, uh, that's a sense of just asking questions. The first ask. The second word translated ask is a little bit different. It's more of like a request in a prayer. It's a wonderful prayer promise that's given there. Since the resurrection, Jesus has promised, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's all-encompassing. The key is to unlimited power in prayer is coming to the Father in Jesus' name. Now, what is significant about that statement? Why will the disciples not question the Lord at that point? Well, I believe he points to the fact that the Spirit will confirm the truth that Jesus has already spoken concerning himself. They will have a new understanding. They'll have a new confidence. They'll have even assurance of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And that assurance of sufficiency of Christ for us gives us an unceasing joy. Again, do we know this joy? Am I talking about something that we know? Go back to his sufficiency constantly and find your joy renewed constantly. And then thirdly, the practice of prayer in Jesus' name. Verse 24, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Now up until this point, the disciples had not prayed in Jesus' name. That's something that we uh, talk about from time to time, about how we're to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus instructed us that way. But he says, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. The disciples weren't praying in Jesus' name at this, up to this point. And the promise given was not so much a wish list to get what we want from God, satisfying our selfish desires, but it's a far-reaching principle that through the name of Jesus, anything is possible in prayer. We may take for granted the privilege of prayer that we have as believers, but we must consider that the typical Jew was afraid to approach God. He was glad to have a priest lay his needs before the altar of God, and he would pray too, but not with the confidence that we can enjoy. 
And so Christ tells his disciples that they can now approach the Father in his name and ask in order to receive. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Do you know the great honor that is ours to be able to come before an eternal God in prayer? Oh, we do not come if we approach prayer properly in our own merits or on the basis of what we've done for God. And people don't understand this many times. They think, I'm too sinful. I can't go to God in prayer. I've done such wicked things. They view God as a director of a heavenly distribution center who awaits orders and fills them as he gets them, you know. That's not the way God is. It's because we have no merits to commend ourselves to God. We cannot say, look at all the things that I've done for you, and now would you please give me my request? That's essentially what we see in the story of the Pharisee and the publican who prayed in the temple. The Pharisee offered God a litany of his merits, but Jesus stated that his man was not heard in his prayers. And so our Lord tells us to ask the Father. Yes, ask in an unbounded fashion, but to do so in His name. Now, does that mean we just use in Jesus' name at the end of our sentence? No. We don't use it as a secret password to get through. Are we to use the name at the end of our self-centered requests? Some use His name as if it was a Hindu mantra. Others use it as a glorious name, as if it was a magic word or a magician's bag of tricks. To pray in Christ's name means to, with recognition that our entry before the throne of grace is on the basis of what Christ has done alone. That we are not worthy. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. And then in verse 16 he says, Let us therefore come boldly in under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He doesn't say come you know, with pride and boldly, Lord, you've got to hear me now. No, but we can come to Him without fear. And we can request from God. To pray in Christ's name is to pray with His authority as one who's been redeemed by His blood. It's to pray with the consciousness of your request is in concert with His will, His eternal purpose. It's to pray with a heart of seeking the kingdom of God first in your life. And by the way, This is not a suggestion here. It's a command. He says, ask and keep asking and ye shall receive that your joy might be full. And such praying puts us in a relationship of constant dependence upon the Lord and we can yield nothing but joy in the Lord. You know, one of the benefits of our redemption in Christ is the fullness of joy. I wonder, if do you know the joy of the Lord this morning? Are you rejoicing in the Lord? Are you, uh, are you dissatisfied with anything less than wondrous joy flooding your heart and mind? 
I say let's stir the flames of joy in our lives by recognizing afresh our joy is not in our circumstances, but it's in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's see the grace that's been shown to us. The riches of love in Christ Jesus, as you heard us sing. Let's recognize the assuring work of the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God and the work of Christ and indeed is sufficient. And let's give ourselves to prayer. And Paul told the Colossian believers, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Be devoted to prayer. And the holy testimony of joyous believers can have a great impact on the work of evangelism as anything else we might attempt. The testimony of joy is not radiating in your life. And I would urge you to seek the Lord for this joy. And while you're seeking and asking, rejoice in Him and His work on your behalf. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you once again for your rich treasures within your word this morning. Lord, help us to be Christians who aren't just happy, but we're rejoicing. And we pray, Lord, that our rejoicing may be because, not because of our circumstances, which are difficult many, many times, but because of what you've done in our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can learn these lessons even from the lessons you were teaching your disciples before you went to the cross. And we pray, Lord, that we might realize the joy of the Lord is our strength day by day, moment by moment. And while there may be sorrow for a time, there is joy that cometh in the morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.